Good evening, everyone. My name is Charles Stang, and I'm the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions here at Harvard Divinity School. And that is my dog, Zena, in the corner. She joins me for most of these events and meetings, and uh, I understand she has a rather large following among the CSWR uh, audience members, so I wanted to acknowledge her. Uh, so anyways, welcome to this evening's event, and an especially warm welcome to our distinguished guest, Tanya Lerman, who has kindly agreed to be with us to discuss her latest book, uh, How to, I'm sorry, How God Becomes Real, Kindling the Presence of Invisible Others. Now, before I introduce Tanya, uh, I must first report that unfortunately, Joseph Prabhu cannot join us this evening. Joseph has fallen ill, and so I will be stepping into his rather large shoes to uh, engage Tanya in conversation. And for those of you who were looking forward to seeing Joseph, I'm very sorry, but I can promise you that we will have him back at the CSWR for another event as soon as he has convalesced. In the meantime, Joseph, if you're watching, uh, we wish you all our very best. So it is my pleasure and privilege to welcome my colleague and friend, Tanya Lerman, to the CSWR. Tanya hardly needs an introduction here, but I will give her one, uh, albeit a fairly brief one. She's no stranger to Harvard Divinity School. In 2014, she gave the, uh, Williams James, the William James Lecture entitled William James in Accra. We're delighted to have Tanya back. She is the Albert Ray Lang Professor at Stanford University in the Department of Anthropology. She is a medical and psychological anthropologist and also an anthropologist of religion. More recently, she describes her work as an anthropology of mind. She sets out to understand the way people represent thought itself and the way those culturally varied representations shape the most intimate experience of life itself. She asks how the world is made real for people and how that realness shapes a person's sense of capacity and purpose. She has done ethnography on the streets of Chicago with homeless and psychotic women, and worked with people who hear voices in Chennai, Accra, and the South Bay. She has also done field work with evangelical Christians who seek to hear God speak back, and with Zoroastrians who set out to create a more mystical faith, and with people who practice magic, especially in Britain. Her latest book, how God became, uh, God became, how God becomes real, was published recently, just in 2020, by Princeton University Press. She has many other books uh, known to many of you, I'm sure. Uh, perhaps most famously, "When God Talks Back: Understanding the American Evangelical Relationship with God." That was in 2012. Uh, that was named a New York Times Notable Book of the Year and a Kirkus Reviews Best Book of the Year. Our earlier books include Of Two Minds, The Growing Disorder of American Psychiatry, The Good Parsi, The Post-Colonial Anxieties of an Indian Colonial Elite, and finally, Persuasions of the Witch's Craft, Ritual Magic in Contemporary England. She was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2003, and she received a John Guggenheim Fellowship Award in 2007. So here's the format for this evening's event. Tanya will first introduce her book for 10 minutes or so, and then I will pose a series of questions to her 
but in the hopes that she and I will fall into a rhythm of a conversation rather than a formal interview. Who knows, she might even pose questions to me. Finally, uh, at roughly the top of the hour, we will take questions from the audience, again, to that Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Tanya, again, many, many thanks for joining us. The floor is yours. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I hope that my own pandemic puppies do not decide to make a, a more noisy entrance into our conversation this evening. Thanks so much for having me at the Divinity, at the Divinity, the Divinity School Center of World Religions. I'm really sorry that Joseph can't be joining us, but it's, it's so, so lovely to have the opportunity to talk with you um, and to chat about my book. So let me say just a few words about it. I think, you know, the idea of forming the book this way actually emerged at church one morning when I looked around the congregation and I realized that people weren't really there because they believed in God. They were there because they wanted God to kind of, they wanted to believe in God more. They wanted God to feel salient. They wanted not to freak. They, 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 they talked about you know, wanting, being in church and wanting to be like Christ and walking out of the door and yelling at their kids when they were driving home, kept forgetting that God was real throughout their, their, their life. So as you point out, I've spent time in a lot of different faiths, you know, charismatic evangelical Christianity, magicians in London, Zoroastrian, Zoroastrians in Bomb then Bombay, um, but also in phase I don't write about until this book, newly Orthodox Jews in San Diego, uh, Black Catholic Church in, in San Diego. At some point earlier in my career, I actually joined a Santeria group, just this kind of you know, Afro-Cuban spirit possession practice. Um, and I guess in, in, in all of them, one of the things that I saw that I realized it was really important is that people don't believe in gods and spirits. So they didn't seem as if they believed in gods and spirits the way they believe the way they believed in tables and chairs, that they weren't real in the same way. People might tell me that God could do anything or a spirit was all powerful, but they never asked their God to feed the cat or write their term paper or put their foot on the, the, the brakes of the car. They talked, they behaved as if there was something that I came to think of as a faith frame, a way of thinking about gods and spirits and the world when gods and spirits are relevant, and then a kind of an everyday way of being in the world. And that the struggle for the people I knew in these many different faith walks, their struggle of faith was to try to hold the faith frame and the everyday frame together to behave when they're washing the dishes or sweeping the floor as if God were salient, as if spirit was real for them. And so the puzzle that I wanted to write about was how gods and spirits came to feel as if they were real, because I didn't think they felt real at all times for all people in all ways. How did, how did these gods and spirits come to feel real? And I describe in the book something that, sorry, 
Um, a scribe in that book, sorry, I try to be so attentive to all my devices, and of course one never is. Never mind. Um, it's, um, so in the book, I, I, I describe this process of real making as kindling. And I use that term because I think that people, you know, have little ways of paying attention to everyday stuff that kind of helps to bring the, the God or spirit more into the forefront of their awareness that makes the God or spirit feel real and salient and somehow present in the world. So what I do in the book is I kind of re-describe this puzzle that I have of mine, of how God's become real, as uh, the puzzle of, how, of a paracosm. So the word, the word paracosm is a word that was first used to describe a, ch a child's imaginative world. Like the Bronte siblings had this kind of imagine this world they made up and they mapped it and they used special words and they gave it a history and they, they wrote stories about it. Um, I use the word paracosm to talk about a, you know, a, a, a fiction-like shared imaginative world. And by that, I don't mean that the world of faith is necessarily imaginary. But you've got to use your imagination to conjure it up because it's not the world that you find in front of you. You can't see the gods. You can't feel the spirits in ordinary ways. You've got to somehow do something to make them come alive for you, to somehow supplant or be present alongside with the everyday stuff of the world. So how it's the puzzle for me became, if you think of faith as stories, intensely detailed stories that people can enter in and make their own and revisit again and again. How do these stories come to feel real for people? And what do I know from my all my time in these different faith paths? What do I know about that process of, of real making, of how that which has to be imagined comes to feel more vividly present? So I talk about a bunch of different things. I talk about, I notice that talent and training matter. And I should say that in this book, I, I rely on the methods of an anthropologist, but also the methods of a psychologist and trying to demonstrate that there are uh, certain skills and practices that change people's experience. I point out that there are some people who are more talented to use that slightly shocking term. They're more talented in coming to feel that spirits are real for them. There are people who are able to get more absorbed in their inner worlds. I point out that training, to some extent, can substitute for talent. That if you practice using your inner senses, you, come to, you can come to experience that which must be imagined as being somehow as if it pops out of your mind and into the world so you can feel it with your senses. I argue that the way that you think about your mind matters. So I, in this book, I talk about the time I spent with charismatic Christians in Accra and in Chennai and West Africa, South India, along with the charismatic Christians I knew in the States. Um, and I show that the, the way in which these different cultural worlds, the way that people imagine their minds has an impact on how vividly they experience God. And the kind of the blunt summary of that story is that the more you imagine your mind is porous, 
as open to the world, the more vividly you experience things that must be imagined with the inner senses. I have a story to tell about spiritual experience. That spiritual experience is not that it really matters because it becomes for people evidence of the senses of what the senses cannot ordinarily sense. So it becomes for people an intimate personal experience about the presence of these often invisible spirits. And I'm able to show that these practices of kindling, these small practice, socially developed ways of paying attention to the world, shape people's patterns of spiritual experience in particular ways so that God becomes kindled more fluently for people in particular ways and particular in particular faiths. Um, and that this makes a difference to the way that people experience gods and spirits. So at the end of the book, I point out that these kindling practices, they change people. And I sometimes I think powerfully, and I think that those changes might in themselves be reason for the resiliency of, of, of faith, um, that there is something about the way that people work with themselves to make gods and spirits feel more real that changes them in a way that is likely good for their bodies, but also changes their kind of perspective on the world. So I talk about prayer. I talk about the way in which prayer is really structured as a kind of cognitive behavioral therapy or looking at prayer from a secular perspective. You can see that it's really a way of sort of paying attention to some ways of thinking and supplanting others. Probably the most striking thing that I think that I saw in this, in these practices is that as a result of these practices, God comes to feel autonomous and interactive for people, that God work, come to work like a human relationship in people's lives. And this is probably less startling for people of faith than it is for secular observers. But there's something um, you can see that the God or spirit becomes, works like a human in somebody's life. And that these becomes a relationship for people. And the relationship changes people in some ways resonant with a way that a relationship with a human being would change them. I think one of the things that might be salient to the Center for World Religion crowd is that I was raised with um, what I imagine to be the ecumenical spirit of the Center for World Religion ethos, that there's kind of one animating spirit. And, you know, if we could see past the, you know, surface details of faiths, we'd recognize that there was one kind of global kumbaya. You know, and the more time I spent, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm making this up. That sounds like heard. the Unitarian Church you were raised in. That yeah, exactly. Exactly. So like I'm just you are, but go exactly. on. <laughs> it's, um, it's exactly it, and, and you know, so that's how I was raised. The more time I, I've spent in different kinds of faith walks, the more I re realize sort of how ridiculous that vision is, or at least how much the faith communities that I spent time with make God a particular kind of person with whom there are particular kinds of relationships 
and um, and how different that is from a shared commitment to an abstract principle. Um, so anyway, so the message of the book is that faith is not about belief alone, that mm-hmm. faith is about practices. If you wanna understand faith, you really have to understand the way people experience their faith and how those experiences change them. Wonderful. Okay, thank you so much, Tanya. Um, I was really bowled over by this very simple quote from Pascal Boyer on page 16 of the book, where he says, the world over, people do not easily believe in gods and spirits. That's sort of like an axiom. That seems to me almost the launching pad for your, for your investigation. People yeah. believe in gods and spirits, but it takes great effort to do so. And not just to believe in them notionally, but to make them relevant to their lives, to make them appear to uh, have a relationship with gods and spirits. It's something that takes a good deal of work because gods do not impress themselves upon our senses um, in the way that, in your example, tables and chairs do. Um, I also found fascinating in that same chapter, the claim that, or the observation that gods that have malintent <laughs> towards us are easier to um, kindle than gods that are benevolent. Yes. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could unpack that observation a little bit. So I think that's in some sense, one of the more disconcerting things that I decided that I thought was true, which is that if you take, you know, you look at, Look at a faith community. Look at how gods are, are imagined, the way that, 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 that people, people need to, if you take, if you start with the idea that you've got to go to some effort to make God feel real. One of the things that you see is that it's gonna take more effort to believe in and take seriously a God that thinks you are wonderful and promises you the world, then the God that's gonna strike you down if you enter their domain or violate some rule that they have. So if you think about it's, I mean, it's intuitively obvious. I and mean, if you I remember talking to a group of anthropologists who were telling, or you know, I was at a panel and there are a couple of anthropologists who'd been studying religion and distance parts of the world. And the, one of them was studying a, a spirit that promised to kill people if they ventured into their part of the forest. And this anthropologist didn't want to believe in this God. Nobody in the community wanted to believe in this God, but everybody in the community didn't want to venture into this, into the, the, that part of the forest. That there's a sense, you know, that Pascal's dilemma kind of thing. Um, if, if God has mean intentions towards you, it's much easier to kind of worry that that might be accurate. Whereas the God that is offered by many contemporary evangelical churches, a God that's like this great teddy bear of enormous authority, of supernatural capacity, it's such, it's a promise of well-being and justice that just, you know, it's violated all the time in mm-hmm. the everyday world. 
And so, and these churches then actually often begin with the observation that such a God must be unbelievable, but that you will change if you believe it. And uh, so I, I, I thought that, that there was something really there. Mm -hmm. All right. So one of the things that your book pushes back against is a modern notion of imagination as simply imaginary, producing figments of our imagination. Um, although you, you can, you, you might still, uh, anyone could read your book and you might yourself regard many of these believing communities at, that, that their gods and spirits are no more than figments of their imagination. But nevertheless, that imagination brings things forward for the, uh, cr uh, creates these gods and spirits or uh, causes them to appear for people. And you're agnostic as to the uh, reality of what appears to people. Now, I want to I, I ask you about an episode you shared with me the first time we met years ago. Um, if I, so I'm, uh, this is how I remember it. So correct the, any of the errors that uh, you were doing field work with um, magicians, pagans uh, in England, and mm -hmm. you took on as a good anthropologist does, the practices of the people you were studying. So you were doing many of the imaginative exercises that these contemporary um, uh, pagans uh, and specifically kind of magicians and witches and warlocks were doing. And those imaginative exercises were important for this community because it's a, it's a, it's a tradition that doesn't have continuity, it's traditions were broken, so they need these, they, these imaginative exercises are their means of communion with their forebears. In any case, the point is you were taking on these imaginative exercises and you told this amazing story of, I believe you woke up at one point and there were three, let's just call them druids in your room. So, six, but never six, mind. I'm sorry, six. <laughs> So, so you, um, you have experienced the kindling of invisible others, except those yeah. invisible others became very visible. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can, how did that event change you? Um, it didn't curiously make you lead you to become uh, a pagan magician or to regard these druids as real. So what, what was that experience? Uh, how significant was that experience in light of the work you've gone on to do? So, yes, I, um, the, it, the, it was an experience that mattered. Um, so I had, you know, I was, I don't know how old when I began this work, 22, 23. And I had, I decided to do Evans Pritchard in downtown modern London. So Evans Pritchard, uh, fame anthropologist goes off to study with the Azande. And the question is, you know, why do these people believe in witchcraft? And, you know, it was easy for some of my teachers to say that, well, you know, people believe in magic and witchcraft because either they don't really believe it or they don't have science yet. And I had discovered these people in London who mm -hmm. seemed to be doing something kind of similar. And so I was going to go off 
young graduate student, I was going to do, I was going to upend and redo Evans Pritchard by understanding how people came to interpret their world um, as if magic and witches kind of the way, as if magic was, was real. And I was going to discover the narrative patterns and the ways of thinking that help people to interpret the world. So they had the same, you know, so they just interpreted the world differently. And um, I saw all that, but what really kind of blew my socks off as a young anthropologist is that I went to this world. I, people said, if you want to understand magic, you've got to do these magical practices. You've got to learn to do the magic. You've got to do the path workings. You've got to do the, do the rituals, read the stories. And I started having the most remarkable experiences. So I had that moment where I was reading a book about Druids and I woke up and I, and the book was written by a witch. And I woke up and I saw those Druids standing by the window. Uh, had another experience in which I felt magical power shoot through me. Had another experience in which I was kind of reliving a ritual event that the kind of thing that was meant to make your watch, your watch stop and I was trying to, I was reliving it in my mind's eye and I felt power shoot through me and it stopped the watch. Um, so all these were kind of pretty powerful experiences. And I, I, so it taught me, first of all, that this stuff is not just, or maybe not even most importantly about belief. It's mm -hmm. not about a set of ideas people have about the world. It's about the way they experience their bodies. And that these are not, when people tell, told me, that they felt magic working through, moving through them. When they told me that they saw the goddess, it wasn't a way of talking. It was something they experienced. And so for the last couple of decades, I've been trying to chase those experiences, trying to understand how they happen to people. Uh, I, as you point out, I try to put in a black box the question of whether there's an ultimate source of the event. Um, and instead, I try to figure out, well, what are the paths to these experiences? These days, I'm obsessed by the question of how to distinguish between spiritual experiences and the experiences of madness. You know, how to say, well, how can I say that this is an experience that's more like imagination and less like psychosis? Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I, I don't have a good answer to the question of whether the imagination reaches something that's real beyond the physical. That's the deep question of faith and the study of faith. I don't have a good answer to that question, mm -hmm. but I think I do see that, um, I mean, just the fact that practice changes your experience so fundamentally that you can have sensory experiences of something that cannot be sensed. Mm -hmm. It just gives you this, or it gives me a sense that the capacities of the mind and the body that, I mean, challenged my sense of who I thought we were. So were, the, were those sorts of extraordinary experiences limited to the field work you did with the magical community in England, or you've done field work at, at a variety of communities. Have you had these sorts of extraordinary experiences follow you from 
field work to field work? Have you ever, with all your work evangelicals, have you ever had the corresponding experience of God talking to you um, or Jesus being by your side? I'm just using that as an example. So I, I, I think my most remarkable experiences did occur in the magical world. And I think that happened for a couple of reasons. I think that if Jesus showed up at the window and spoke to me because of the way that I was raised and my cultural location, it would be a very, you know, it would be a, it would be a binary choice in the road. You know, it was mm. very, it would be, um, it would be a very big event in my life. Um, and so possibly because of that, I have perhaps kept those more specifically Christian experiences at bay. I certainly feel that I've had um, a sense of the Holy Spirit, a sense of the presence of God, mm -hmm. um, a sense of, I would say that I felt God's supernatural presence um, vividly and for, for me in the garden. Um, that's certainly not a novel place to find God, but it's certainly compelling. Um, but am I right that all of those, forgive me, I'm navigating a, a late afternoon's light here. Uh, <laughs> it's not a spiritual experience. I'm not actually being um, suddenly illuminated. Um, but how wonderful it were. Wouldn't it work if I just if I just did that and uh, no 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 I say if if you were suddenly illuminated by the power of God it would be lovely it would be sadly it's just a regular Monday um, I was wondering though it, it, just to be clear in neither the case with the magician nor with these these experiences that attended your work with evangelicals did it lead you to belief in the reality of these spirits and gods or powers and energies, right? You, so the book is predicated on the idea that, but it actually, as you say, belief doesn't lead to worship. Worship leads to belief, or let's say practices lead to the conviction that these gods and spirits are real. In your case, you performed the practices, you had some remarkable experiences, but you did not take this step or something uh, kept you from the, the next step, which so many of your um, the people you study make, which is to affirm the uh, existence of these God spirits. Well, I mean, I've certainly spent quite a number of hours in private spiritual practice. Okay. And I have certainly uh, recently joined a faith community because I, I, I value the words that are spoken in the community. Um, I mean, I think that there is, I, I, I guess this is what I would say. I have a pretty broad um, sense of um, the ambiguity of belief commitments. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, and I guess, I more and more appreciate that many people in very conventional faith practices share the breadth of that ambiguity. I may remember going to um, I did the Ignatian spiritual exercises in an evangelical church. And I used to think that what really counted, particularly in that kind of church, was the willingness to utter the sentence, I believe in God. Mm -hmm. And often many more specific sentences about the content of that belief. 
And I was struck by the fact that, so I thought in this, you know, Ignatian spiritual exercises group, I would stick out like a rusty nail. And in fact, everybody was like me. You know, my experiences, you know, people sometimes use a slightly different set of words and they would talk about things a slightly different kind of way. But I was comfortable saying that, you know, something like spirit showed up for me or didn't show up for me. That's exactly the language that the people in the group used. They were, um, it became much more sort of alert to the fact that people sitting around a table having a conversation about God. It's easy for somebody, particularly a new member of the community to assume that when somebody uses the word God, they have a whole set of propositions that they're committing to and a model of their mind and an image in their mind. And they certainly have lots and lots of stories, but the ontological commitment, the sense of, you know, where the rubber hits the road materially, which, you know, is often a lot squidgier Mm -hmm. than um, an observer might think. And so I mean, so I have these, um, you know, there's a kind of set of ideas and commitments that I don't quite know what to do with, think about, whatever. But I do have a lot of observations about what helps people to feel as if they've moved farther into the domain of being willing to use certain words more than other words, uh, feel as if there's a, there's a, there's a more externalness. I mean, so for me, one of the questions is, how do these gods and spirits feel more external? feel more that they're not figments of your imagination, but somehow present in the world behind your left shoulder, you know, so, you know, standing at the corner of the garden. Um, That you can learn a lot about with the tools of social science. And that, so that I think I've done. I want to take up that phrase that you just mentioned, well, maybe a minute ago, models of the mind and Mm -hmm. ask you about this. Um, So one of the claims you advance in the book is uh, the way people think about minds, about their minds matters in terms of kindling the presence of these invisible others, these gods and spirits. I'm often struck by how often today people refer to the human mind through computing uh, metaphors. It's ubiquitous now. And I'm struck by it because I feel much as you're arguing, uh, or, but sort of inchoately, as if, I feel as if this computer model of our mind, where we talk about uploading information or downloading this or that, or the code or the software and the hardware of our mind, that that will then condition our experience as human beings. This will come to change uh, how we think of ourselves, how we experience ourselves. I'm curious, what are the models of mind that you have encountered out there in all your various fieldwork and whether there are models of mind that are more or less conducive to kindling others? Mm -hmm. You mentioned one feature already, which was porosity, a mind that is porous. Um, That makes sense. But that's not so much a model of mind as it is a quality of mind, uh, almost a a kind Mm -hmm. of 
virtue. But but maybe but not that's not important to me. Uh, but the other question is maybe not just which minds uh, which models are conducive or less more or less conducive, but whether the model ends up conditioning the kinds of spirits and gods that appear. Right. So that is something I've spent quite a bit of time working on recently, um, actually with a team of remarkable folks um, in the Mind and Spirit project um, that I've been running for well, between 2016 to 2019. And one of the things we were interested in was exactly that question. Do different representations of the mind affect people's experiences of spirit? And so I want to distinguish these, these ideas. These are a set of ideas about the world and particularly about the idea about mental stuff or awareness for want of a better term and vivid experiences of invisible others on the other hand. And one of the things that we found was that, I mean, and so this goes beyond the, uh, the chapter that pops up in the book, um, we did work and we talked to people of faith. We talked to members of the general population. We talked to surveys to undergraduates. And we found that in the US and Ghana and Thailand and China and Vanuatu, five places that we worked in, the more somebody subscribed to the idea that their thought could enter the world and do stuff, that their minds were vulnerable to the thoughts of other people, the more gods and spirits, the more, the more they said that they had the experience of gods and spirits. And you could look just at charismatic Christians, charismatic evangelical Christians, so people of the same theology. Mm. Um, and that the more somebody said, look, thought is potent. Mm -hmm. Somebody else's thought is potent. My thought can be potent. The more they have these vivid experiences, and there is a sort of what you might call an effect of place. So that in America and in China, people were less likely to say that thoughts act in the world, that thoughts could kind of, kind of leave the mind and act effectively in prayer or because of cursing or magical or whatever. Um, you know, the, the fewer experiences say that, the, so folks in the US and China were less likely to, to talk about the mind as potent and they had fewer spiritual experiences. And I think that what I see in the enlightenment model of, I sometimes call the enlightenment model of the mind, a citadel model of the mind. Mm -hmm. You know, we think, and this is partly Charles Taylor territory. We think about um, the mind, in, in the Enlightenment West as being really, really important. It's the source of our identity. It's like, you know, you want to tell people who you are. You don't tell them that you're the, the son or the daughter of so-and-so, or you belong to this group or that group. You tell them what you think, you know, who you, what your tastes are, what your preferences are, what your ideas about politics are. So the mind is very much about identity. It's a very important marker of who you are. But thought doesn't do stuff. Mm -hmm. It's thought, you know, the mind is not supernaturally efficacious. Mm -hmm. And so, and, you know, in that kind of social world, the mind is more like a machine, as you point out, it's more like a computer. Mm -hmm. And then that, with that, those kinds of models of the mind, 
Americans actually have somewhat what I would call an attenuated spiritual experience. They're less, I mean, from different, you know, different walks of faith, they're less likely to have these vivid experiences of invisible others. So you can have the point of view that that's great. You know, you can have the point of view that fewer, that it's, it's better to be a secular person. It's better to not believe in this gobbledygook. But there's another piece, this, here's the way that I think about it, this, and I think that it resonates with some of your work, mm. which is that I am struck that um, when I talk to people about gods, one of the things that people talk, they talk about gods talking, talk about God's kind of imperative commands, do this, do that. They talk, and not everybody, but certainly if you delve into the Bible, the Bible is all, you know, God certainly has plenty of commands for his people. There's this, there's this, um, you think about, if you start thinking about God as a person, one of the things you do is to invite yourself to imagine the mind as, as a relationship between people, not as a vast interior universe, but somehow as a kind of awareness of self in a relation to self. Mm-hmm. Um, I began thinking about this when I was trying to, beginning to sort out the differences between religious experiences and psychotic experiences, because people who lose connection with reality, people who become, who have distorted thoughts and distorted perceptions of the kind that we call mad or psychotic or schizophrenic. Their experience often is an experience of communication. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, it's almost like as, as if it's a kind of default behavior of mind. Your, your work suggests that, you know, your attention to early Christianity and the, and the, and the ancient world um, talks about the, a divine double of the, of the self discovering a doubled self mm-hmm. in, um, as the heart of the experience of divinity. Mm-hmm. And what I've been trying to kind of, I, I know this sounds a little bit waffly, but I've, but I've been thinking about more and more recently is whether we have a description of mind as just not only as wrong, but as not terribly helpful. That I mean, that we, we imagine the mind as this vast immaterial universe, utterly itself, separate from the world. Maybe the human experience of mind is much more mind in relationship with others. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, kind of gets overlaid by cultural ideas about from machines and from the enlightenment, whatever. You know, this kind of doubling, this sort of self in relationship to self, that has many costs, the kind of default and psychosis. It also has many, many benefits. I mean, people who are able to experience themselves as loved by this invisible other, it's obviously better for your body. That's something that we know from this, from the scientific research. Um, it's probably, it seems to be a very powerful way to self-soothe. Um, it's a sort, it's probably a, a, a very valuable source for human flourishing. 
Anyway, that's a series of sort of slightly mm. disconnected thoughts. Well, maybe maybe I'll just say a mo- uh, f- uh, something yeah. very brief uh, for those uh, nearly 200 people here who I'm certain have no idea what the divine double means. Uh, let me just say <laughs> what Tanya is referring to is uh, research I've done on in the ancient world uh, into this idea that we uh, that that humans uh, either all humans or in some cases a select. Uh, a select group of humans have what I call the divine double. That is some sort of divine counterpart, uh, which can, which, which is a, a person uh, that you encounter uh, a kind of heavenly celestial or divine person that is also you. Um, and then you sort of enter into this new, you, the you you thought you were is not actually you. You're just one part of this, uh, this larger person. Um, so it's very much self-meeting, self and discovering what this new self will be. Um, And that's interesting because you're absolutely right. It's a dialogical and a relational understanding of self, but it's not so much operating on the horizontal plane as between you and I friends as on some kind of vertical axis Mm -hmm. where we are each meeting some aspect of ourself. But that raises a question for me about the elision between personhood and human. Uh, And so agent, human, and person all seem to mean the same thing for you in in the book. Um, You you comment on the fact that people are seeing agents everywhere. Uh, They're experiencing spirits and gods as persons. Mm -hmm. And I want to think with you about the difference between human and person. Mm Um, certainly if you're an evangelical Christian and you're cultivating a relationship with Jesus, you're cultivating a relationship with um, a person who is human, fully human, uh, and also fully divine, uh, uh, according to Orthodox Christian theology, a fully human Jesus. Uh, And so one would expect that one's encounters with that person would be fully human encounters. I'm wondering about those uh, people who experience spirits and gods as persons, but as non-human persons, mm-hmm. or persons that that attenuate our understanding of humans, mm-hmm. um, spirits and gods that behave very in a very alien fashion. It can be disconcerting, mm-hmm. um, precisely because we're expecting to enter into a relation, a familiar relationship with another human but we find ourselves on very different terrain. Mm-hmm. Has, that been, um, has that been a live feature of the communities you've worked with? So when I think about, when I use the word person, mm-hmm. I tend to mean by it a mind. And by a mind, I mean a sense of awareness. So this actually is like, uh, basic William Jamesian kind of thing that the, what it is to be human is to be be aware of uh, something that we would call interior or or, or a kind of a minus um, an, an an awareness of um, some sort of uh, thought like stuff that's different from what we are aware of that there's this basic kind of divide in the world that then is culturally modeled in different kinds of ways. And I think that, and so when I think of, when I use the word agent or, or person, I'm talking about something really minimal, 
like mm-hmm. that sense of consciousness or aliveness. Um, I think there is a remarkable variation in the world of these of, of um, minded spirits. But I think one of the things that Pascal Boyer was really right about in, in his attempt to kind of describe the constituent elements of religion is that the gods who survive or the, the, the gods who are known by many people tend to be gods who are like persons but tweaked in particular ways. Mm. So you never get a god who is so alien as to appear only on Tuesday afternoons at three o'clock. Those tend not to be the gods that become central to faith traditions. You also, I think there is a big divide, and this is Ara Noren Zion's uh, divide between the big gods and the little gods. Mm-hmm. So I think around the world, you see a story about there's certain common features of gods as they become omnipotent, omnipotence tends to travel with omniscience, tends to travel with being its own. So there are certain common features of gods that emerge, which have kind of knowledge of what humans are thinking. And they tend to be associated with um, sort of also powers over, over humans. The little gods tend to be gods which are less omniscient and have less power. And Ara makes the claim that these omnipotent omniscient gods are associated with big social changes in human organization and that changes society in particular ways. So I think that um, there are, you can say that in some ways that there are fiends I mean, Jack Miles describes the God of Job as, as, as God, God is a fiend in Job. But really the God that comes out of the accumulation of all of those stories of the Hebrew Bible tends to be sort of recognizable, more or less behaving in, in a richer way uh, like a person, but as a particular socially framed kind of person. Um, gods and spirits that are negative definitely become weirder. I mean, so they are in the, you know, different social worlds will cast them as being particularly weird and out there and, and bizarre. Um, And, but, and that's certainly true, but I think, uh, anyway, sorry, that was a slightly rambling answer. I think that there are, Mm-hmm. I am struck by the fact that um, gods are usually recognized as recognizable as kinds of people and that the p- more powerful they are, the more alike they become. I guess that's a simple way of saying it. Well, we're, we're getting near the top of the hour and I'm, there's many, many questions already posed, but there's one um one I want to pose uh, before ceding the floor to others, and that is um, back to Pascal Boyer's claim, essentially that it, it takes great effort to to cultivate this relationship with gods, which you've then explored the how of that. It's actually, uh, which is really beautifully done. And, and mind, he, he was commenting on my work when he made that claim, but never mind. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. 
Okay. Uh, so it was not that that claim is the launching point of your book. Your book, he's, he's, summation, he's summing up your work on that. Okay, forgive me. Um, in any case, this idea that the, the idea that this takes great effort um, is no doubt right. Uh, I'm wondering about, and this will come as no surprise, we have a friend in common, uh, Jeff Kripal, who has made a career uh, mining a very different vein, which is people who have had unbidden experiences of these presents that completely upend their life. Yeah. And then the, you know, uh, among the things Jeff is interested in is what do individuals or communities of such individuals do to integrate or fail to integrate such unbidden experiences. So I'm wondering if you could comment on that reality, not so much how hard it is to cultivate a relationship with God, but in almost the opposite, when a God stubbornly presents him or herself to you, perhaps you didn't even want the experience, then how do you, how do the, how do people, um, uh, manage, negotiate that relationship? It's a great question. And it's, you know, and I talk about the, the effort and I'm able to show that the effort and the practices make those experiences more likely, but I'm certainly, you know, it, it is just the case that people have these unbidden experiences. I think for me, there's a, again, this sort of Jamesian question of the relationship between the, uh, the body's experience and the um, and the human's interpretation of that experience. So one of the things, that, one of the reasons I cherish James because of this, this observation that there's something in the, in the body, for want of a better term, which is the mystical experience, that there are capacities that humans have that might have some ultimate source that present themselves to people, and that can change their life. It's clear that they don't always change their life. So there's this great, you know, one of the penguin anthologies of mysticism has these stories like tucked away in the middle of the, you know, excerpts from the Bhagavad Gita, but people who had remarkable experiences and forgot them because they made no sense to their lives. So there's a, there's a story about events that happened to people, William James, would want to say that even that unbidden experience really comes out of a, law, of a long period of preparation. I don't know if I believe that. Mm -hmm. I think I'm not sure, you know, so Jeff had this unbidden experience, but he was, had spent many, many years reading texts and, you know, he, he arrived in Calcutta to read Kolkata as it now is, and to, to read those texts more intensely. And it was in the reading of these intense texts that a goddess came to him. So he had an experience that I would call sleep paralysis. So there's a configuration of, again, the body is a big, broad term that covers a lot of ground. Um, humans, about a quarter of all humans, have events um, in which the REM cycle seems to get interrupted. And, when the, and for them, they will often experience their body as asleep, una unable to move. Mm -hmm. They experience a presence in the, in the room and the presence then will interact. Most of those experiences are not 
ecstatic. They're experiences of demons. And some of them were not. Jeff's was not. It was a sexually ecstatic experience. Mm-hmm. I think we know. What do we know? I think we know that those what, that when you cultivate those experiences, but I, but I don't mean intentionally. I mean that if you if your culture attributes meaning to sleep paralysis, you're more likely to have sleep paralysis. So you get you know so that the the um, well, this and in this book I talk about, you know, the rates in the U.S. of sleep paralysis are lower than the rates in Thailand for sleep paralysis. And sleep paralysis is a very, you know, it's very, very meaningful in Thailand. It's really, I, I don't, have not come across a good account mm-hmm. of why some experiences of sleep paralysis are ecstatic and some are horrific. I don't, I don't just, I don't have a good explanation for that. Um, I think one of the, one of the questions that I struggle with is um, how unbidden the experience is. Mm-hmm. I feel confident that in certain occasions I have inhibited the flowering of my own spiritual experiences. I think one reason I had so more intense experiences when I was hanging out with the witches and magicians in London is because I was, I wanted them and they didn't carry any cost for me in effect. I was, you know, I was just fascinated by these experiences and I was young enough and foolish enough not to think about their theological or emotional meaning. I was able to simply have them. Mm-hmm. And now I know that experiences would be much more meaningful to me. And so I think I inhibit myself a little bit more mm-hmm. in having these more remarkable experiences. So what should I have one now it would probably would have more emotional and theological meaning to me yeah. than it did when I was 22. Um, I think there is... Um, so much we do not know and so much more we need to, I mean, we are at the beginning of understanding these remarkable experiences we call spiritual. I think they're patterned in the body. Certain people are more likely to have them. Certain people when they have them are more likely to act on them and try to try to do something with them. Many people like Jeff would want to chase that experience they would have the event and they would, then they would want again and again, something that um, athletes sometimes say to me that, you know, that certain kinds of athletic performances, they're so amazing. Yeah, but that's, that's actually, I think that's true of many people who had extraordinary experiences, but actually mm-hmm. not Jeff. <laughs> uh, Jeff is actually says, you know, he's a, um, a paragon of non-experience. He had this one extraordinary experience and what he has done is he thinks he's tried to, he's write, written about it. The experience has been essentially, he's just, his work pours out of that experience. And mm-hmm. he's also tried to theorize and frame out and make room for such experiences for people who want to make sense of them. 
Um, so there's almost a kind of pastoral quality to much of Jeff's work in that regard. But uh, we're not here to talk about Jeff's work. So uh, as much as I know we both um, find it fascinating and challenging, I'm gonna suggest we move to the Q&A now, Tanya. Is that, sure. is that okay? Sure. So you mentioned earlier uh, the, that you are also doing work um, with an aim to, to differentiating spiritual experiences from pathological experiences. Yes. So this is a question from someone who I think is familiar with your work in that area. Uh, the, the question is, um, Professor Lerman, how, uh, you know, you've studied severe mental illness. How do you draw the line between being imaginatively gifted uh, versus having a pathology like schizophrenia? Is it a matter of volition and control? It's a great question. Uh, it's what I'm writing about these days. Um, people do not meet criteria for schizophrenia unless their life is in disarray and unless their life remains in disarray for a good chunk of time. So technically six months, but I mean, it's usually for, for much longer than that. Um, people, so I draw the distinction or I think that there are many, many deep questions about this. And I think that the line is pretty hard to draw, but I would say that the more external, when people talk to me about experiences, the more audible the experience is, in other words, not four to six words, but paragraphs and conversations, the more negative those experiences uh, the more I'm willing to say, huh, I wonder if this is experience of schizophrenia. Typically people who become, you know, or what I would call high in absorption, who have these uh, intense spiritual experiences, they're more likely to feel the presence of gods and spirits. Typically their um, true hallucinations, by true hallucination, I mean an unambiguous sense that, that there is a sensory communication you heard with your ears, you turn and see to see who is speaking. Typically, those experiences are pretty brief. They last four to six words and they are rare. People can count, you know, they can count them on their, on their you know, the fingers of their hand or they, they happen a few times, you know, maybe once a month. But they, but but they, but they're rare, um, and they tend not to be negative. They tend to be startling. You know, people will say they were driving down the street. They heard God speak out of the back seat of the car, and God said, "I will always love you." It's quite striking, but it's not negative. So the big difference. So there's 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 you know there Augustine's experience motion, you know, a moment of intense emotion. He wants to convert. He runs into the garden, throws himself at the fig tree. Here's tole legi, take it and read. That's very different from the prototypical case of somebody with schizophrenia. And most people fan out, you know, across those two different poles. There's a lot of stuff in the middle. And that's... And it's very hard to have a definitive line to say, well, this, I think this is more psychosis and this is more imagination. But the, 
it's a very good question. Here's a follow-up. Um, have you found that profound or long-term loneliness plays a role in generating talent for communing with gods and spirits? How is trauma like training? Oh, great question. So first of all, yes, uh, loneliness is more likely to be associated with it. You might call it, it intensifies the search for communication. Um, and so people are more likely to report that there's some kind of communication from an invisible other. Trauma, so this domain of absorption that I talk about is talent. Um, when I'm teaching my undergraduates, I say that I use the parable of that, those six blind men in the, at the side of the elephant. You know, six blind men, there's one at the elephant's trunk, one at the tail, one at the, you know, one at the side. And then this one says it's a ball. This one says it's a, you know, it's a snake, whatever. So there's some... In that there is an elephant in human experience, which is our capacity to experience actions of our own agency, for want of a better term, as non-agentic. This loose domain of absorption, trance, hypnosis, dissociation. Trauma heightens dissociation. So not everybody who, who is, experiences something distressing is traumatized. Not everybody who is traumatized and always dissociates. But post-traumatic stress disorder is, describes the development of a capacity to dissociate, which for the person who has PTSD protects them to some extent from the traumatic memory. That is a kind of skill and is a kind of training. And I think, and is certainly related to the kinds of training that people who seek to know God more intimately will pursue. Here's a very simple question. Well, maybe not, but someone is wondering, oh, this is Graham, Graham McGrew, hi Graham. Uh, were the six druids a sleep paralysis experience? Oh, it's a very, no, they were, you know, so this is more part of my obsessiveness. What, is there what David Hufford would call a core experience? Um, no, for me, the, 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 the druids were a hypnopompic experience. I was reading um, The Mists of Avalon, which was written by, by, by a witchy woman. Wonderful book. And I was really trying to read it the way a witch would read the book. I was really trying to allow, you know, the characters to be real for me. And I fell asleep and I basically woke up um, with dreaming about the book, but not in a state of paralysis. And it was, I didn't experience it as a dream. I experienced, I had, you know, 40% of Americans have these experiences, but they only become meaningful to some people. And for me, this became a meaningful, powerful, oh my goodness kind of experience. I woke up, I saw six druids against the window, beckoning at me, I should say. And I you know, wrote it down in my dream diary and went back to sleep. And I got up the next day and I was, no, 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 no. And suddenly I remembered it. And I went back to my dream diary. I was keeping a dream diary because it was part of a group. We kept a dream diary. And this was another witchy magical thing. And it was like, oh my goodness. 
and had written it, underlined exclamation point this this I really saw these it was not a dream um, so it was very compelling I'm going to tell a little story that will lead into a question um, I promise I remember so I, I grew up with almost no knowledge of evangelical Christianity although I grew up in a uh, Christian uh, world by and large uh, Midwest uh, I remember seeing a video for the song, I believe it's Carrie Underwood, Jesus Take the Wheel is the name of the, uh, name of the song. And uh, I like scales fell from my eyes because I felt like I was being shown a worldview. Jesus Take the Wheel. Not the Jesus I had known growing up in a kind of uh, white liberal um, uh, UCC church. Now, I, I relay that story because you've said a number of times, however powerfully people believe in gods and spirits, they don't ask gods and spirits to feed the cat, to take out the trash, whatever. Yeah. So what, on your view, are evangelicals saying when, they, when Carrie, uh, Carrie Underwood, what does she mean when she says, Jesus, take the wheel? Oh, that's the wheel of the ship. I think. Steering no, it's, no, it's the wheel. No, it's oh, the wheel. Of it. It's a, it's a driving. I, that, yeah. That's clear. But I mean, like that would see. I, I, literally, yeah. she's saying, "Jesus, you you steer this car, um, not me." But clearly, yeah. you don't think that's what evangelicals are actually thinking. They're going to. Carrie's going to continue driving the car. So, so what? I, yeah. What is that about? So what I thought was so fascinating about the evangelicals I spent time with is that they they really push the personness of God. So they really want to have these stupid, trivial interactions of God in order to make God feel more real. So it's a, it's a kind of training technique. So I remember, you know, going to church one Sunday and the pastor said, you should pour a real cup of coffee for God. So you've got your cup of coffee and you've taken ceramic cup and you pour it full of coffee and put it there for God. So you're talking back and forth. It'll make God feel more real to you. And so the young evangelicals I knew would do things like ask God what shirt they should wear and you know where they should go on vacation or they'd go down to the lake with God, sit on a park bench. You know, one woman told me about, well, you know, God's got his, got his arm around my shoulders and I'm snuggling up and I'm telling him about my life and my day and I'm asking him about his. And so, you know, it, and that this young woman, very sophisticated young woman, um, I knew perfectly well, like many, many people, like the people I knew in these churches, they knew perfectly well that the more that they, in effect, mixed their experience of God with their... Um, human imagination of trivial stuff that it might be them and not God. Um, it might be, you know, people would tell all sorts of jokes about, ah, she thinks that God means her to marry this guy, but let me tell you, that's not God's idea. That's her idea. You know, they would tell these jokes, but so the evangelicals wanted to sort of, use their imagination as vividly as they could because they thought that they weren't experiencing God as vividly as they wanted to. And then they would make God feel more real. But what they really wanted God to do was to metaphorically 
take control of the wheel, the wheel of the car of their life. Mm-hmm. They wanted God to like, they wanted not to forget God when they walked out of church. They wanted not to yell at their kids. And they wanted to, you know, they wanted, they sort of really wanted to believe and experience that if they put their trust in God, God would make, would make the path of their life smooth for them. Then it was kind of a mess and it didn't always work. And they knew that perfectly well. But that was, I was struck by the, the way people lived with ambiguity and, and metaphor by trying to be as literal-minded as possible. Tanya, I think we probably have question, maybe time for two more questions. And I think the, the second one I'm going to ask you is rather open-ended, so it could take some time. But here's one from uh, Mimi Winnick. Mimi is actually a resident here at the CSWR um, and a WSRP research associate. Uh, she writes, first of all, thank you for this wonderful conversation. In light of your mists of Avalon experience and your additional research, how do you find particular practices of reading fiction, for example, absorption in novels, connected to these becoming real spiritual experiences? Can certain forms of reading be a kind of training? Absolutely. Great question. In fact, you have... You have uh... And the Divinity School has generated one of the more well-known recent forms, which is the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. To, <laughs> um, I don't always agree with their interpretation of Harry Potter, mind you, but it's it's. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm really struck that they were two students at the Harvard Divinity School who really loved Harry Potter and turned it into a sacred text, and they used and they now use it to reflect upon their religious experience, but absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, reading the Bible when you are are doing it as an evangelical Christian is a little bit like delving into Harry Potter. You know, people wanted to be as vividly present and reading Harry Potter, reading, um, you know, reading Hilary Mantle, reading J.R.R. Tolkien, any book that is uh, vividly, you allow it to be vividly real, can do spiritual work for you. The deep intellectual question is the relationship between the truth claim of the novel mm-hmm. and the truth claim of, of the sacred text. And it's easy to say that we, you know, believers are treating the sacred text as true and the novel is not true. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. I'll just leave that there. Now, I, I, that this uh, prompts me to provide some further context for the story, your story that I mentioned earlier. So, for everyone gathered, uh, Tanya and I first met at a conference in which we were asked to relay a anomalous or extraordinary experience we had had, and then to uh, float a theory of. R- the imagination and reality that could somehow accommodate this anomalous experience. So it was a sort of exercise. And I've already, we've already talked about Tanya's amazing Druid experience, which I had not thought of as actually a reading experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one that I shared w- was very much uh, two intense reading, uh, m- moments of intensive reading where something like a, uh, I won't go into great detail, but something, some, some uh, person uh, appeared. Let's call it Nietzsche. 
Okay, we're not good. Anyway, yeah, so one of them was Nietzsche. I had Nietzsche visit me once. Um, and, uh, and, and so, so I, I have a particular interest in the way in which reading is an ecstatic technology, <laughs> a way of uh, soliciting the appearance of um, what? Who knows, you know, of, of persons. And then the question becomes, what is that thing that appeared? Uh, who is that person that appeared? Is it me? Is it not me? Is it a figment of my imagination? Did I summon something? Um, all the very questions I'm sure, Tanya, you were going through with your druids, except I'm sure I would be more inclined to suddenly become a druid if that had happened to me. Um, but that tells you more about me than, than about you. Um, in any case, I just want to underscore that I think Mimi's question about reading is really important. It's, it's, and reading gets, um, it gets demoted as a practice. Uh, and it is a very strange practice, reading. And I think one of the things that this work has really taught me is to really encourage um, one's willingness to delve into an imaginative world that feels safe and exciting for you. I mean, I think that it does all sorts of good for the, good for the soul. So maybe one last question, Tanya, uh, very open-ended question. What kind of research would you like to see on the subject of religious, spiritual, mystical experience in the future? Basically, what do you think is the undiscovered country? What's the frontier of the exploration of experience? I think we know still next to nothing about spiritual experiences. We don't have a rich understanding of whether there are core experiences. I mean, we sort of do, but we sort of don't. I, mean, I actually think that spiritual experience is in some sense analogous to psychiatric experience. We have a pretty clear, we used to have a clear sense. Um, we used to be, American psychiatry used to be psychoanalytic. Then it decided that there were core experiences and there were clear differences between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and depression and whatnot. And now psychiatric science is like, ah, no, there, there are no, it's, it's all dimensional. And I think that that conversation has yet to be had in the study of spiritual experience. I think there's, there's still arguments about what's core-like in spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. We still, I know that being high in absorption makes it more likely that you have these experiences. There are so many more proclivities that we don't know about. Um, so there's a question of what proclivities, you know, what are more likely to, um, lead to certain kinds of experiences. I think there's a whole puzzle about the unknown unknowns. I'll share a story that um, when we were doing the Mind and Spirit Project, there's a young woman, Rachel Smith, um, who was doing the, the field work in Vanuatu. And we were, we had a, had a list of questions I knew we wanted to ask to everybody about sleep paralysis and, you know, hearing the voice of God and seeing something and feeling a sense of presence and, you know, you know, all sorts of questions. And, um, and Rachel kept saying, well, what about the little blonde dwarves? And I thought this was 
a metaphor for everything we didn't know how to ask about. Like I knew some questions to ask, but I didn't know all, also, all sorts of other questions we might ask. Well, it turned out that Rachel actually meant that in Vanuatu, people see little green, little, I think, little blonde dwarves. And that if you're going to talk to people in Vanuatu, you need to ask about that. So we figured out how to ask about that. But it just, there's, there's so much we don't know how to ask about. Uh, there's so many ways, you know, how do, are, are the way that the early Christians experienced God, is that analogous to the way that, you know, contemporary evangelicals experience, experience God? I, I could give you an argument about the way that they're familiar. Sure, Char Charlie would give us an argument about how, the, how that they were, they're utterly distinct. And I think trying to think about, well, I mean, I think that as, oh. you know, the, the question has sort of been formed in some sense uh, in such a unsophisticated or in such a beginning way, you know, as either it's experience and everybody has it or it's, 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 it's or it's not. I mean, it, it, and I think that there's much more subtlety that we can bring to bear to explore um, how to compare experiences. So the puzzle of how to compare experiences, the puzzle of how experiences are like and unlike psychiatric experience and under what conditions and for whom, the puzzle of trauma, you mm. know, what is trauma? I mean, it's a, such a big word in our culture, um, but I think that, that the earlier questioner was really onto something, that their trauma does change people's experiences in particular ways. Um, I don't think we have a good way of differentiating between kinds of trauma and how those will exchange, change people's experiences. That whole messy question of psi experiences, are those experiences? How to think about those experiences? Jeff Kripal wants us to talk about UFO experiences. Are those experiences of shiny objects in the sky or are those white light experiences that we find in every culture? Was Evans Pritchard having a white light UFO experience when he saw witchcraft in Zondiland? Anyway, it's, I, I think that there's so much for us to explore. So the right. stuff between the humanities and the, and, the, and the social sciences and the neurosciences, it's all relevant. Well, now I'm afraid I, I have to ask you one last question. Yes. Sorry, this was, I, I, I lied. Um, so the center has had a wildly successful series this year on psychedelics and the future <laughs> of religion. Yes. So we've heard a lot about psychedelics and extraordinary experiences. That's great. Yeah. From some scientists who, and Johns Hopkins, where these remarkable therapeutic outcomes are indexed to very specific experiences that they label mystical. Right. Um, Roland Griffiths. Roland Griffiths inaugurated this, our, our series, exactly. I'm wondering what you think of either that specific conversation around experience, but more generally, do you have thoughts on this very, very vibrant, live, popular and academic conversation about experiences uh, and psych experiences in psychedelics? I think it's a great conversation. I think that one of the one of the deep questions is whether different substances give rise to, arise to different kinds of experiences as ayahuasca, different from psilocybin. Um, it's an area, keep, people keep, 
asking me to, to walk a little farther into this domain, I have to say that uh, this proselytization of evangelical Christians is as nothing to ayahuasca drinkers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, I got to remember some somebody coming and giving a talk and going out for a beer afterwards. And it's like, um, it's uh, so I, I think it's quite interesting. And I think that there is um, uh, Benny Shanin wrote this amazing book about ayahuasca experiences. I don't know how to think about the relationships between the substance and their effects and ordinary human, ordinary, ordinary human supernatural experience. There's mm-hmm. gotta be a relationship because both are acting from a human brain, right? Mm-hmm. So there's something that the human brain is generating the experience with the aid of who knows what beyond. Um, and there are a lot of theological questions to ask about the difference between an experience inspired by something you might want to call God and inspired by ayahuasca. Those are complicated questions. Uh, I remember my witches once said to me, oh, you can't take a helicopter to the top of Mount Everest. It's not the same thing. And you know, she wanted to say that LSD was the elevator, or it was the helicopter. You know, you got to do something. It has to come from within. I, and clearly, these the folks who study this don't think that that's true. They they think that the substance is making a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I, I I think it's a deeply interesting domain of work. I don't know if the experiences are the same. I think that they have some kind of relationship, and I think that the theology is up for grabs. Great. All right. Well, now I, I will honor what I said earlier and stop asking you questions, Tanya, because we've been grilling you for an hour and a half. Um, so first of all, I want to thank everyone for joining us. We still have over 100 people here. And uh, for those of you who asked questions that we were not able to address, uh, you can take some consolation in knowing that we will pass those questions on to Tanya. Uh, so she knows the kinds of questions that her book is prompting. Um, but uh, in any case, Tanya, this was thrilling. I'm really grateful to you for writing this book. I'm grateful to you for writing all your books. I'm grateful for your friendship. I'm grateful for your collegiality. And uh, I'm grateful for the grace with which you fielded all these various questions, uh, including some of mine, which were uh, not entirely crisply formulated. So. <laughs> <laughs> we should share that experience with others. Thank you very, very much. You're it was very really, welcome. yeah. Take care. Bye bye. Okay, everyone. Good night. Thanks again, Tanya. Take care. Bye bye.